Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. me to check out your new ride? This isn't what I was picturing. Listen, Greg, I've had it with the wussy Nissan Versus. The Komatsu VD355A bulldozer is who I really am as a commuter. Why didn't you just get a Hummer? (laughs) It's funny you should say that. Do you see that green Hummer over there? That one? He never knew what hit him. Actually, the Hummer is rolling down the hill toward a baseball diamond. Those kids are going to get out of the way. How else are they going to develop reflexes? I'm just wondering what kind of miles per gallon this thing gets. We don't really say it that way. We say liters per hour, and the answer is 27. Look, Greg, I don't feel like being lectured with all your Bernie Sanders self-righteousness. We all know what the future is. Giant hurricanes and homicidal robots. I just want to squeeze a little joy out of life before that happens, okay? What are you going to do? Tell Bernie? You're going to tell on me, Greg? Kion, watch out. That's Bernie standing there on the New Haven Green. Walk it off, commie. Let's get this baby up on the highway and crank her up to 7.9 miles per hour. Kion, pull over. This just isn't right. A piece of heavy equipment doesn't give you the right to be a destructive monkey head. Wow, um... You are probably right, Greg. But as a woman, I felt helpless and vulnerable for many years. It's been really hard, Greg, really hard. And, you know, maybe that's why I made this crazy choice. Well, I'm glad we could talk about this. Gotcha! You have been so totally served. Watch out, world! Here comes Demolition Girl! Kion, that's a toll booth! Talk about an easy pass, am I right? Uh, Please drop me off. Not until you listen to this show about bulldozers. And now his college nickname was Stump Grinder, Colin McEnroe. Welcome to our bulldozers ourselves. Uh, We're going to talk about bulldozers in lots of different contexts here. And sometimes bulldozers will be kind of a proxy for other kinds of heavy heavy equipment. Sometimes other kinds of heavy equipment will be a proxy for bulldozers. We're going to talk about what they've meant out in the real world. Uh, we're going to talk about what they mean in our minds. Uh, we're going to talk about why, in fact, we sort of cathect with them at a very young age and sometimes never decathect. Uh, sometimes I still want to play with them as adults. And it turns out there are people who do that as a sort of a vacation. They go and they uh, they get to operate heavy equipment. Uh, you'll hear about that towards the end of the show today. We got a lot of ground to cover here, uh, but we want to we do want to begin with that first bond, the early bond <laughs> that we make with a bulldozer or something like a bulldozer. Joining us now is Kate McMullen, who writes children's books, including a number of picture books about transportation and construction vehicles. Uh, she's an executive producer of Amazon Prime's animated series, The Stinky and Dirty Show, which is like really one of the great titles of all time. Um, I can't believe that nobody thought of it before. But anyway, so uh, Kate McMullen, uh, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you. Great to be here, Colin. And then let's talk about this. Okay, so you kind of got started with one of our proxy vehicles, right? It wasn't a bulldozer. It wasn't a payloader. uh, It wasn't a front loader. It was a garbage truck that really kind of got you on the road. Yeah. 
You became a garbage truck groupie. Uh, I pretty much did. And this led to other uh, books about uh, equipment, uh, about backhoes and tugboats. And ordinarily, this would be a just a peculiar habit that Kate McMullen has, except that children really, there's a huge audience for this. There's an avid audience for this. I think we know that if you try to raise a child, particularly a little boy, and although you may want to dispute some of the sex role stuff here, but uh, particularly a little boy, and you never mention bulldozers, you never point out a bulldozer or a backhoe or a payloader or anything like that as you're passing by. If you do your best to keep this child isolated from heavy equipment, this child will still <laughs> want heavy equipment. He or she will want toys that are heavy equipment. Uh, he or she will. So first of all, I'm sure that's part of the feedback that you get from your audience. Uh, yeah. When I had my daughter in a stroller, my friends who had boys in their strollers, they would go to the construction sites. That's where the kids wanted to go. And they'd peep through those little holes and they'd watch holes being dug. And, the, uh, you know, the moms were going, okay, are you, th- are you done enough? And the, <laughs> the boys never got enough. I don't want to stereotype kids by gender, but we got our daughter a truck when she was little, and she wrapped it in a blanket and rocked it. So Let's talk about what that means. I mean, not what that means, but what this interest in heavy equipment is all about. Do you have any theories about this? I mean, I, I suppose you don't get, like, detailed comment threads from four- and five-year-olds. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you don't, you know, they don't write you, you know, five-page letters either. But, I mean, do you have a sense of what the, what's going on here? I, I have a series of irresponsible Norman O. Brown type theories, which I will allow you to shoot down. But uh, first of all, I was wondering, do you have a theory? Well, I think it's power. You know, the big, it's sort of like why they like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. They're big and powerful. And well, with dinosaurs, they're extinct. So that helps them be safe. The vehicles aren't dangerous. And I think they stand in for like, could I do that? Could I dig a big hole? And it's a vicarious pleasure of seeing how they work. Now, we could go a little deeper and we could say, well, why are they interested in things like a garbage truck or something that pushes dirt around? Well, most of your audience has recently gone through a period or is in the middle of a period where other people, outside powers, have developed an unhealthy and totalitarian interest in the child's own waste products, right? I mean, suddenly there's people <laughs> telling you, no, you can't poop there, you can't poop in your pants, you got to poop over there, we're going to take it from over there, we're going to put it someplace else. So you've been through all that. I mean, you've had to surrender for a while your control in the name of achieving your own control. But you had to surrender your own independence and your own volitional defecation to higher powers. Some of the fascination has to be, oh, well, you know, I could actually own equipment that moves this stuff around, you know. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to shoot this theory, Dad. I think there's something to it. And I think the title with the title, I stink. Kids love to say, I stink. There's liberation. When they stink. It's liberation. I do think that's true, that your childhood, as wonderful as we try to make childhood, there are oppressive aspects to it. You don't get to decide when you go to bed. You don't get to decide where you poop. You don't get to decide whether or not you go for that car ride. You don't. There's a lot of stuff you don't get to decide. So there's something about these things that are bigger than your parents' car. You know? <laughs> they could take on your parents, huh? Yeah. I, I, I think there's, you know, at least... The dream, the dream of somehow or other superseding your basically powerless environment. I'm liking it. Yeah, you're not fighting it off anyway. I am not. I can see that. When I wrote, I stink, and then I'm dirty, and I'm mighty, and these things, this kind of analysis doesn't really enter into it until afterwards. No, the artist doesn't know. The artist is unconscious. Exactly. Yeah, you as an artist are unconscious. 
then the critic, uh, I'm sort of the Clement Greenberg of your work. I'm, I come along and <laughs> talk about it and find all kinds of meaning that you did not intentionally put in it. But then I'm assuming also that the, we should talk about the Stinky and Dirty Show because these are kind of the adventures of two pieces of equipment, right? This is this allows the child to project fully into a world, a, a narrative world for uh, heavy equipment. That's right. And Stinky and Dirty in the show are kids. It's a little garbage truck who says, maybe I'll be a flatbed truck when I grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make any sense, but it's funny. So they are always trying to solve problems, these little kids. And they are, you know, they call on bigger vehicles to help them out sometimes. They can, you know, access these bigger, stronger vehicles. But basically, they solve the problems. So that's a powerful feeling, too. So I'll give you my third and final uh critical analysis, my theory about this, which is, and this sort of ties into other things that we're going to be talking about today with some of our other guests. The other thing that you can say about heavy equipment is it's essentially the domestication of war equipment, right? A bulldozer is, is a tank without a gun on it. It's a, it's a domesticated version of an you know, instrument of destruction. So to whatever degree the child knows or senses that he has destructive impulses, it's an invitation to supplement them. Like the worst thing a bulldozer ever going to do is knock over a building. And I'm wondering if there's something there, too, you know, that that part of the child's acclimation to his or her world is to understand, well, you can't really be a tank. That wouldn't be good. You'd really be hurting people. But you could be a bulldozer. I'm not sure about that. I mean, it may be that bulldozers and wrecking balls cater to that impulse. Like, they like to knock down the block towers. Let's let's destroy it. But I think there are a lot of vehicles that really don't have that element, Mm -hmm. like a concrete mixer. Yes. Just going around and around and around. True. And then I think they have a lot of bodily, they're a lot of constructed by our own bodily functions. So kids can see that in them. And I think that's one thing they like. I'm not sure about, like, if it can't be a tank, I can be a bulldozer because I don't know if they know about tanks. Well, first of all, I would never respect you if you agreed with all my opinions. So uh, okay. I think that was all good right, that you put good. up some resistance there. And certainly as they get older, they'll discover the ways in which their digestive system truly resembles a cement mixer. But that comes at like in your <laughs> 60s, really. No, uh, I'm not sure. I think they get it. I think right. on some level, they know. All right. Well, Kate McMullen, uh, we're very excited uh, about uh, not only your books, but obviously The Stinky and Dirty Show, uh, (laughs) which was the alternative title for The Colin McEnroe Show. We just decided to go in a different direction. So (laughs) congratulations, and uh, we wish you nothing but success and the ability to move large amounts of dirt around. (laughs) Thank you, Colin. It was fun to talk to you. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, I wanted to ask Kate about that um, sort of demilitarization uh, idea, the idea that a bulldozer is essentially a tank without a gun, partly because of our, our main guest here today, who is uh, Francesca Amon, uh, the author of Bulldozer, Demolition and Clearance of the Postwar Landscape. Uh, her book is the is out. It's the reason we're doing this show. Uh, and even though what she's just listened to may have completely persuaded her, she she shouldn't have agreed to do the show. But in, but in fact, um, it, there's, it, there's, a, there's a segue from this to that. Uh, and uh, there are several segues. We just talked about uh, bulldozers as, in, as a child's image of liberation. We're now going to talk about bulldozers as an adult image of oppression. Um, but first, I think we need to talk about the kind of the military connection here. Uh, Francesca Amon, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. And in your book, Bulldozer, Demolition and Clearance of the Post-War Landscape, you don't start with the post-war. You start with the war, right? The war at which point that was the time when we sort of figured out as a nation, as a military power, hey, we're really good, really good 
better than we even thought at moving dirt around and breaking stuff and demolishing stuff and clearing landscapes and knocking down groves of coconut trees and building airstrips. I mean, we, we just kind of discovered this untapped and subsequently enhanced capacity for all that stuff, right? That's right. The war, I think, uh, was a really integral piece of the story of the bulldozer, which, of course, precedes the war as well. Um, But during World War II, particularly on the Pacific front, uh, bulldozers and other construction equipment become really important in clearing away uh, trees and dirt uh, to make way for bases, uh, airfields, highways as well. Uh, They become important tools, uh, weapons as well, even in battling the enemy in some cases, and the, and the machine emerges from the conflict, um, having proven its worth um, and its power, uh, and, and it then it comes home and remakes the American landscape uh, in the post-war period. Because we developed this extra capacity, too. We made a lot of these machines. We made them bigger. We made them better. There were a lot of things for them to do. And, and you know, there's a, a moment uh, in your description of World War II that reminded me of, a, I don't know, back in the 90s, uh, somebody was wooing me for a job in Las Vegas. And they said, well, you know, nothing ever gets painted or anything around here. If something gets old, we just tear it down and build something else. You know, that kind of notion of the disposable landscape. Well, there's this incredible moment in your book where you describe um, one of the – they're making this, this essentially – an air highway to Tokyo. They're building landing strips on island after island. And some military officer says, I should let you tell the story, about what happens when a bulldozer breaks. Basically, they just bring up another one. <laughs> uh, there's two sides to that story, actually. One is that they're almost indestructible, right? right. There's, they're, uh, they're building the highway. I think it's out in Hawaii, uh, this incident you're talking about. And they are having trouble getting them down the hill. And they just decide to roll them down the hill. And you know what? They survive. <laughs> They're these really hardy machines. Um, and uh, and so they can take a lot and they can still do a lot at the end of that. Um, so and, and then the other side of it, as I said, is that they had plenty of them. The production, as you mentioned, uh, was ramped up for the war. And although it was really hard to buy a new bulldozer um, at home, say you, had, you wanted to build a highway uh, back in the United States, um, all the equipment was going out to the Pacific and the, uh, and the European front as well. And so these manufacturing facilities, had a lot of capacity uh, to then be reused after the war was through. Yeah. Actually, the story that I was thinking was uh, C.B. Adolf Pisani says uh, one of them talking about the D-8 Caterpillars, the, the kind of quintessential uh, World War II bulldozer, uh, one of them would break down. They didn't bother fixing it. Bulldoze it off in the ocean. Ah, get it right, out of the right. way so another one could go to work. So they actually bulldozed bulldozers into the ocean because it would be just easier to bring another one in. That's how many of them that they have. So very quickly, we're going to go to a break here in just a second, but to kind of set up the premise of the book, the part of the premise of the book is, you know, we came out of World War II with this unexpended capacity for, for doing this kind of thing. And so our attentions turned to our domestic environment. And, and suddenly you had the, the building a, of a huge interstate highway system and you had urban renewal. You had these forces in which the capacity of the bulldozer to do something similar but different was unleashed. I, I don't know if you have a way of saying that in a nutshell. Uh, well, basically, it the the machine transforms from uh, you know military weapon to a tool of urban planning in the post-war period. So you have this uh, transformation, same machine, but different activities. And as you said, there's three big ways that it reshapes the post-war landscape. Uh, in cities, for urban renewal, demolishing buildings. Um, in suburbs, uh, clearing land for large-scale track development. And then in cities, suburbs, and rural landscapes, uh, moving dirt for the creation of 46,000 miles of interstate highways. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more in one of the other segments about 
using New Haven as a case study. But one of the things that's pretty clear there is that, like, I thought one of the more chilling is not the right word, but troubling moments in in the New Haven chapter of the book was one one in which um, some of the people who were relocated so that their neighborhoods could be demolished so that something else could come in would go back quite a long time later, sometimes years later. And the thing that was going to come in wasn't there yet, that, that the capacity to, to demolish and clear the landscape uh, had outstripped the ability to bring the thing in that, that supposedly had to be made way for. That's right. There, there was often a real rush uh, to clear away and make that blank slate for new construction, uh, but all too often it took a very long time for those clean slates to be developed. So very often you'd have parking lots um, as interim uses, and they lasted for, for quite long, longer than the cities wanted because those weren't good economic uses of the land, and, and, and they were sad uses of the land for those people who had formerly you know, called those places home. Uh, so the pace of activity, the destruction, it took longer than they wanted sometimes too, but was relatively quick, and they wanted to get that done, but the new construction dragged out for, for quite a long time. I mean, as you point out in the New Haven chapter, although it was often very sad to lose neighborhoods, and it happened up here in Hartford, Front Street, which was this kind of quintessential um, uh, uh, sort of pre-World War II Italian-type neighborhood, the kind of thing you see uh, in the beautiful early scenes in, the God- in Godfather II, um, that got wiped away. Uh, ethnic enclaves tended to be w- wiped away. Anything that somebody might call a ghetto uh, might be wiped away. And obviously there were tremendous amounts of, of loss when that happened. But as you point out, I mean, some of the people that you talked to said, on the other hand, whatever that American dream is, you know, that notion of the ranch house on the quarter acre lot, you know, that's where a lot of people went. A lot of people got lives that may have ultimately looked quite a bit better to them than, you know, the third floor walk up they were living in. That's right. In physical terms, um, many of the people did receive better accommodations. And one of the, you know, the, the act that really set this off, the Housing Act of 1949, an overarching goal, uh, was better housing for everyone. And so um, you have people moved to the suburbs or around in the city, uh, presumably to better accommodations. Uh, but what sociologists who followed up with these individuals found was that um, you know, physical improvement didn't necessarily lead to psychological and social improvement on uh, these communities. Individuals had a hard time making friends even years down the line, and they, they never recovered in a lot of ways um, from the root shock, um, as, as it's been termed, of being uh, displaced. Um, so physical conditions are definitely necessary, improved physical conditions, uh, but the cost is those uh, psychological and social consequences. And, and that's what we learned, I think, through the widespread example of urban renewal. All right, so we're talking today about bulldozers, what they mean to kids, what they mean uh, in the world of urban renewal, what a bulldozer even is. Uh, and we'll also talk about how bulldozers are actually used by some people recreationally. We'll talk about all that as we go along here. Quick break. We'll come back. Bulldozer girl. Bulldozer girl. All right. Uh, we're back. We're talking about bulldozers. We're talking about them as what they really are uh, and also how we see them, uh, what they've meant, how they are symbolic of the dem- demolition and clearance of the post-war landscape, to steal the subtitle of Francesca Amon's uh, book, Bulldozer. Uh, we also do want to talk about what a bulldozer really is and what it is today. So uh, joining us uh, to be part of that conversation, and then we'll circle back to Francesca. We have quite a bit more to talk to Francesca about, but let's talk to Jason Annitzberger, uh, who's project 
manner for Komatsu, America's intelligent machine, machine control line of bulldozers and excava- excavators. You heard in our introdu- introduction uh, a reference to the Komatsu D-355, I think, which is uh, one of the state-of-the-art bulldozers. Or maybe it isn't. Uh, Jason Annisberger, obviously everything's uh, more high-tech than it used to be. So uh, you grew up reading Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel. So did my son. Uh, but uh, things don't really look so much like that anymore. What's a modern bulldozer like? What, what does it have that it didn't used to have? Hey, Colin. Pleasure Hi. to be here. Yeah, I don't know. So if uh, you had that impression from Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel, maybe you're thinking uh, machines belching black smoke out of the exhaust or greasy palmed operators pulling heavy levers. Well, that's not really dozers anymore. Today we've got touchscreen displays like your smartphone or tablet, factory integrated into uh, Komatsu dozers along with GPS positioning technology. So we're moving mountains of material with precisions of 30 millimeters or or so, and uh, the blades controlled automatically to preloaded CAD 3D designs from the very first to very last pass. So quite a bit of a change. And uh, we also read, getting ready for the show, that that uh, you need experienced operators for bulldozers. Why why would there not be as many experienced operators today as there were in the past? Yeah, that's a great question, and it kind of varies uh, by region. Of course, uh, you know, they had a financial crisis a couple years ago, and, um, yeah, where the industry is at, um, it's just tough sometimes to find that experienced dozer hand. So that's where we really see a good opportunity with the technology is that it opens the door uh, for operators to be very productive in the machines, even if they are lacking, say, many, many years of experience. To do effective dozing uh, manually, it does generally take a lot of experience, uh, a good feel for the machine to interpret those motions, those sensations that you feel as you track along into then controlling the blade to give you uh, good accuracy. So that uh, technology really is a uh, an aid and a replacement uh, for that in some cases. Although, yeah, I mean, it, it would seem to me that you, you know, you would develop a certain skill set and a certain feel for what you're doing, a feel for the earth under the blade, a feel for what the blade is doing. Uh, are you saying that, that ultimately that can be replaced by technology? Uh, at the very least, augmented. So uh, no doubt, experience helps you in the machine today. So uh, today, if you doze manually, a experienced operator is going to be more productive than an inexperienced operator. Now you put those two individuals into one of these advanced dozers with uh, added intelligence, an operator with years of experience is still going to be more productive than a, a person right off the street. So, But the benefit is that both of their games are getting improved. So the technology holds a benefit for them both. If, yeah, if you uh, tried to jump in a dozer for the very first time to uh, and try to make something, you're going to make a mess of it, no doubt about it. Um, so uh, everything seems to be headed towards connectivity to what we call roboticization, which could be, uh, you know, anything that doesn't have a living operator uh, right in it, drones, stuff like that. Is that what bulldozers are going to be, too? Are they going to be operated from remote centers? Yeah, so I guess I would say uh, we're definitely seeing a trend of increased automation and in construction equipment. Uh, so, I mean, today there's uh, autonomous haulage uh, systems or basically large electric drive mining trucks that Komatsu makes that do not have operators in them, so fully autonomous. On the dozers uh, today, we're not there. Um, basically, we have these uh, systems that we've uh, integrated into them, added this intelligence so that part of the machine operation is automated, but still we have the operator in the cab um, 
controlling the other aspects of the machine operation. All right. Well, we've been talking uh, to a representative here of Komatsu, uh, one of the, you know, really at this point, two, two big uh, uh, signature uh, bulldozer companies. Uh, Jan- Jason Annitzberger has been joining us from Komatsu. I have a Komatsu and a Caterpillar. I like, I like the four-shift uh, gear, uh, gear bo- four gearbox on the Komatsu. Sometimes <laughs> I like the Caterpillar for the, you know, the, the bigger engine, the 3D 7.7 motor. But anyway, thanks so much. That's kilowatts, by the way. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Uh, we're going to uh, swing back here. And I'm sorry for ping-ponging around so much, but we're, we have a fundraising show today, so I have to sort of run the clock a little bit differently. Uh, Francesca Amon is going to be with us the entire time. She's the author of Bulldozer, Demolition and Clearance of the Post-War Landscape. So, um, uh, Francesca, I'm going to kind of compress some of what you do in this fascinating New Haven chapter, uh, where New Haven, in a kind of way disproportionate to its size and population, really participated in urban renewal. So, uh, you know, the initial sim- symbolology of that was wrecking balls and bulldozers. But, you know, after a, a few years or maybe after a, a decade or more, um, that became a little less slowly less fashionable, right? This notion of rehabilitation, of saving something, of moving Louis' lunch, the famous hamburger place, that becomes more the symbol than knocking something down. What does it take for that mind shift to have to happen? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, I think, is the experience of, uh, of implementing this widespread clearance approach and people starting to push back against that and uh, saying, aren't there other ways that we can still maintain our communities? You know, different conversations that, um, you know, feed into legislation. In 1949, as I said, the Housing Act um, uh, provides federal grants to uh, subsidize the clearance of slums and other blighted, so-called blighted areas of cities. The federal government would pay two-thirds of the cost of that. So that was a great incentive to cities to put plans that were clearance-oriented into action. By 1954, they say, okay, you can start using some of that money uh, for rehabilitation. And by 1966, you have the Historic Preservation Act, uh, which is having its 50th anniversary this year, uh, which really um, articulates this idea of let's let's see what we can save. And that's, that's from people who care about buildings architecturally, uh, people who have lived in the neighborhoods, who want to have a greater role and say in what their communities are going to be. Um, so it's kind of a groundswell of different forces um, that lead to alternative approaches that maybe clearance alone isn't the only way to remake our cities. Maybe being modern doesn't mean just new buildings. Uh, maybe preservation and rehabilitation can also be a part of that. And in the book, you find the fer- perfect pictorial symbol for that in the moving of Louis' Lux- lunch, this archetypal uh, hamburger place that even pretends at times, or, or contends, I guess maybe would be the way to say it, contends for the title of having invented and introduced the hamburger. So moving it instead of flattening it, uh, it's a great symbol. It's the perfect image. Uh, we're talking to Francesca Amon uh, about bulldozers. We'll be talking more about bulldozers when we come back. If you like this crazy show, and by the way, yesterday some of you tried to call in and donate, and the phone bank in the Shire, we use Hobbits, uh, was broken. So please, if you tried to donate yesterday and you couldn't, please call uh, today. These nice people for the next few minutes are going to ask you to support this show that you love, this crazy show that does shows about bulldozers. All right, somehow today I wrote Kyle and Wolf's usual thank you script. 
<laughs> lost it or erased it. So I got to thank, uh, first of all, uh, the person producer of the show is uh, Jonathan McNichol. Uh, when Francesca uh, Amon's book, Bulldozer, Demolition and Clearance of the Postwar Landscape, came in, we looked at each other and said, got to do this show. Kion Wolf, of course, is on the board making everything just sound great. Uh, Stephanie Reeve is on phones. It always turns out Betsy Kaplan did something. I don't know what she did with this show, but it, I, every time I think she didn't do something, uh, it turns out she did. So thank you for whatever that is. The part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Urich, who actually appears in the movie Killdozer, this really terrible B movie uh, about a bulldozer inhabited by a space alien thing situation. Uh, and, of course, for show pages, articles, and uh, videos of the Here and Now staff playing with their trucks, go to WNPR.org. Here we go. Uh, we're back to the Bulldozer Show. I want to come back to Francesca Amon uh, and talk a little bit more about the, the cultural aspect of this, also very well covered in her book. So, Francesca, um, you know, a lot of the book is about the, A, the romance uh, of the bulldozer, and then, B, the way that romance uh, turned into the uh, kind of, the well, the demolition and clearance, the, the destructive uh, power of the bulldozer that was sometimes uh, pretty hegemonically employed to uh, dislocate uh, old uh, ethnic and racial enclaves, even gay and lesbian people, uh, the changing of the American landscape. But you also deal with the culture of this and how really our whole relationship, our psychological relationship with the bulldozer did change at a certain point, just in the same sense that it wasn't cool anymore to bulldoze Louis lunch. Uh, it, the bulldozers weren't quite as cool. I mean, they start turning up in movies like Fern Gully, you know, as things that are really kind of bad. Uh, so, so talk a little, tell us a little bit more about that. How, how did our psychological relationship with this machine change? A variety of things. Um, as I said, kind of the lived experience of what it meant to bulldoze landscapes was very different than the very simple imagery planted in people's minds um, and, and believed in many cases, I'm sure, uh, at the outset. So uh, one of the officials behind Urban Renewal said at the outset of the program that you know this would be like um, armies of bulldozers smashing down acres of slums and that this would be swift and clean and, and, and modernizing. And the, the reality of it was much more difficult, um, much dirtier, much slower, uh, and much more damaging, as we've, we've talked about a little bit. So um, the lived experience on its own starts to dismantle the, um, you know, the image of the machine. Um, also, the legacy of, of World War II dissipates as well. Coming out of the war, you have these really um, supportive stories about how bulldozers have figured into battles. This memory starts to fade as the, as the war moves more distantly into our memory. Um, Vietnam is a different kind of war, and associations with militarization are, are not nearly as, as positive as they had been with World War II. Um, so you have that as well. Um, and then even our cultural products start to transform, as you were mentioning, movies that depict bulldozers in, um, in a different light, um, that, that story of Killdozer, um, uh, artworks uh, like earthworks artists who start digging holes in the dirt in the desert and we start to question what's going on there. It's not all simple progress anymore. And even the children's books aren't all so celebratory. Um, you know, you don't just have friendly Benny the Bulldozer and Buster Bulldozer. Uh, you have stories about, um, you know, young kids living in New York whose homes are being demolished and, and what that means to them and the nightmares they have about bulldozers coming and changing their um, their domestic environments. All these things combine um, to to take down that you know all encompassing positive view that I think uh, is more popular at the outset of the post war period. Yeah, and it uh, uh, it absolutely absolutely does uh, seem to change. And there is actually, as you say, I think it's a 1944 story. Initially, it gets turned into a comic book, a uh, graphic novel, right. kind of called Killdozer. But then it gets turned into this 
very disappointing movie. I watched some of Killdozer, <laughs> and it's not even as good as it should be. Uh, uh-huh. It's just not even a good mystery science theater uh, thing, but it's Killdozer. It's about a bulldozer that is taken over uh, by some kind of alien uh, space life. Although how something that goes one or two miles an hour couldn't easily be walked away from is a little hard for me to understand. They don't really go very right. fast, those bulldozers. Um, so, so if, yeah, if you, if yeah, you contrast ahead. that with, with the movie The Fighting Seabees, for example, that John mm-hmm. Wayne is in um, during right at the outset of this period and the, the celebrated way that these machines kind of win the day, um, it's a very different depiction of, of what these machines are all about and how they relate to patriotism and progress. Um, so they're, they're great contrast just in the cultural media itself. Did you, uh, by any chance, as in, in your peregrinations since then, run into the story of Marvin Hemeyer of Granby, Colorado? Do you know about him? Uh, yes. Uh, he, he kind of takes off around town and starts destroying things uh, with a, a bulldozer run amok, something like that. Yeah, he armors up a bulldozer. He kind of returns yeah. it to its uh, its old militarized past. This was 2004 in uh, Granby, mm-hmm. uh, Colorado. He didn't kill anybody. He killed himself at the end of this rampage. But uh, mm-hmm. I think he, he would rampage, rampage for about two hours, and there were SWAT teams following him around, shooting at his bulldozer and, and mm-hmm. not making a dent in it and everything. But it it is it's kind of like almost this residual last gasp of that notion anyway way that that the bulldozer could be used that way and that it could get out of control which is kind of what happens during the post-war period too although it's it's not you know armored and running around town in certain ways we lose control of of the simple idea of clearance equals progress um and and it starts to to get away from us in a way and and it gets reined in by these other pieces of legislation for example uh that temper the places and ways that we can implement clearance it still happens but there are a lot more checks and balances in place uh to make sure that that's really what we want to do and that the people that are affected are adequately compensated uh, uh, well, the minute we started talking about doing this show, my mind went to a couple of different places. And one of those two places was I thought there's got to be something out there for people who are not heavy equipment operators but still, but have never outgrown their childlike love of this stuff and would just get off so much. We just keep ha- find it so intriguing to be able to use one of those, like on a vacation or some kind of corporate retreat or something. There has to be something like this. And it turns out. Well, actually, there is. We're going to talk now uh, to uh, the person who who really kind of specializes in that, that, and that is uh, Randy Stinger. Uh, He's the founder and CEO of Extreme Sandbox, also a great name. Uh, So first of all, Randy Stinger, uh, welcome to this conversation and explain what Extreme Sandbox is. I've kind of given away some of the the story, but but tell us what you guys do. Yeah, and thanks for having us on the show. so Extreme Sandbox, we're a heavy equipment adventure company that basically lets people play on construction equipment. So uh, we really have found a way to kind of turn that uh, the curiosity on this equipment from that, you know from being a roadside work zone curiosity into an informative, exciting, hands-on experience for people. And, and so um, who does this? Who, who winds up electing to spend, uh, I don't know, is it a day? Is it two days? I mean, well, first of all, how, how big a package is this? Yeah, and, yeah, we do it. Uh, usually, there uh, at most would be a day, mm-hmm. um, but we've seen our clients. You know, we, we started the concept about four years ago in Minnesota, and you know, initially we honestly didn't. We're, we just tested it out. We didn't know if it would take off, and then uh, we started part time on weekends only, and the business just blew up. And and what we've really seen is that all ages, all demographics. We go down to fourteen years old. We go all the way up to. Uh, we've had ninety two year olds in the cab. So. I think, uh, you know, good diversity of men and women have done it. So, you know, I think everyone's got that little inner child in them from when they were a kid. They, we see this stuff every day. We want to play in our big sandbox. And, you know, that's, that's really what we're able to do. And most of our, I would say most of our clients spend about an hour 
uh, to two hours out on site, maybe just doing one piece initially. We run excavators, bulldozers, and wheel loaders. Um, but they'll usually, you know, they can. We have all-day packages if they want. There's a lot of different options we have. You know what I hate is when the 92-year-old gets to the bulldozer, puts the left turn signal on, and just leaves it <laughs> on. The so um, is there you don't want to be... say anything. By the way, the 92-year-old and the bulldozer with that, don't say anything because he's in a 20-ton bulldozer. Yeah. And <laughs> True. Exactly. He's doing a great job no matter what. Yes. So uh, are there dates? Are there proposals? Are there things like that? I mean, is there a, 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 a romance to any of this? Uh, I'm sorry, are there dates? Do, do people go on dates, you know? I mean, Oh, dates, yeah, I have couples, um, yeah. totally. We, uh, you know, we've, we've actually started, you know, initially we only had one of each piece, and then we quickly realized after a year or two, people really want to do this in pairs. So we now run everything we run is in pairs, and yeah. the beauty of that is we can we can teach two people at the same time, um, you know, it's the same equipment, and we call it, we have, we call it dueling adventures. Yeah. So we have dueling excavators or dueling bulldozers where we can actually have you kind of compete head-to-head. Um, the great thing is you're on headsets. We're all talking on the same channel. So, as a, you know, if we have a husband and wife in there, they can be heckling each other or brothers or something like that. Um, that's it's, it's really a perfect activity for that. Right. My mother always said never go to bed uh, until the two of you have uh, shut down the bulldozer. Uh, is, is that the most uh, – what's the most popular piece of equipment? What do people want to uh, use? Probably, the excavator is probably our flagship. That's probably the most popular, you know, second with the bulldozer. Um, but the reality is, you know, people ask us when they call, you know, which piece to pick, and they – and I tell people they're like my kids. I can't pick a favorite. They're all the same. But, you know, the excavator is probably one of the primary in the construction industry seen the most, and people want to get out there and dig. Um, but after I put people, if, if they do multiple pieces, you know, I usually get a pretty even split 50-50 on the bulldozer and excavator and which one they enjoyed more. And um, I understand that this has now become kind of a team-building corporate uh, retreat kind of thing too, right? You, this is one of your big markets? Yep. Yeah, and that's really what we kind of morphed into is we, the first year we just did, you know, it was weekends only. It was the, you know, husband, wives, the families, you know, more of a tourism kind of kind of draw. And then within the first year or two, we started getting contacts from, you know, large companies in the, we're in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And, and that's really where the light went on for us as we saw the, the lack in the industry for corporate team building activities. That was something unique. A lot of these big companies were they're sick of doing the golf outing or the you know, maybe bowling or so many other things that they've done so many times. This really is a truly unique um, activity. And we not only can we play with the equipment, we can also do we do scenario-based training. So we may actually take like an executive team. And, and in those instances, it's not just about playtime. It's about how do you use the equipment to accomplish a task as a team. Um, and that really is something very unique that no one in the world is doing with construction equipment. This is an amazing story, and Randy Stinger, the uh, company, is called Extreme Sandbox. Uh, look them up on the web. Uh, do your next corporate retreat there. Uh, if you get Yahoo, as a, if they book you, be careful. They may want to, like, bury the whole executive staff or something like that. Don't let them do that. And obviously, friends do not let friends bulldoze drunk. Um, so uh, as we come to the end here, Francesca, I, I mean, obviously that story was is not the story that you're telling. But in a way, it kind of is that, you know, it's like the Wild West. When there wasn't a Wild West anymore, there were Wild West shows. And then gradually the whole thing kind of shrunk down into this almost recreational and, and entertainment model as opposed to a historical historical reality. Is, is that what you see happening to the story that you're telling, telling under the title Bulldozer? Um, I guess so. Uh, you know, where, where I stopped the story is really um, in the 70s when urban renewal comes to a close and the Highway Act isn't building more highways and, and things are starting to change. Preservation is a bigger part of it. But obviously the bulldozer rolls on um, and they're part of 
uh, building and unbuilding today. And we see it very active still in places like Detroit that are demolishing a lot of uh, vacant buildings. So the story continues, uh, but it's more isolated in its application. And it lives on, as you say, in the entertainment world and in our cultural forums. These children's books continue. Uh, But it's not the everyday reality as it was in so many cities across the country um, in those early post-war decades. Well, also the dream changed, right? I mean, what we hear Mm -hmm. now is that millennials are moving back to cities. They want they want to live in, you know, maybe some of the kinds of places. Uh, that were raised back in the 1950s, uh, they may want to write it. Write it. You know, the, they may want to live in a much more rehabbed and improved version of that. But the, the the actual notion of the American dream that was behind the ascendance of the bulldozer is changing even as we speak. That's true, uh, but there is a continued interest in um, in living in the suburbs, um, and sprawl continues, and the bulldozer and other um, machines like that are really integral to the moving of dirt, dirt and the creation of building pads uh, for those purposes too. So it's not um, it's not really <laughs> entirely in the past. It does continue, um, but is operating in slightly different ways. All right. Well, you'll never completely uh, bury the bulldozer. Uh, Thanks so much, uh, Francesca um, uh, Amon. It's a great book, Bulldozer, Demolition and Clearance of the Postwar Landscape. We've barely scratched the surface there. And so um, let's uh, bring the music up as we say thank you. And uh, thank you especially to uh, Jonathan McNichol, uh, who produced this show, and to Kion Wolf for engineering Greg Hill uh, for tweeting for us at WNPR Colin and appearing in the intro. And uh, once again, people are going to come on here and ask you maybe to support the kind of programming that you like. So absolutely support the kind of programming that you like when they ask you to. It does help our show specifically if you donate while we're on the air. So keep that in mind. And if you like a show that would do a whole episode about bulldozers or that kind of thing, please do pay attention. The doors are super solid. It's got a great sound system. And check out my horn. Eh? Eh?